Acts 4 today. So if you haven't opened your Bibles to Acts 4 yet, go ahead and do so. Uh, if you recall, we just finished Acts chapter number 3. And Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. They made a habit of this. There was a prayer time at the temple. They were there in the afternoon. And on their way into the temple at the beautiful gate, the gate that is called Beautiful, uh, they encountered a man that had been lame since birth. And every day they brought him in, they laid him at that gate, and he would beg for money there at the gate. And that's how he made his living like that. And so they came across this man at that beautiful gate. And Peter said, I have no money, silver and gold have I none. But instead, he introduced the man to the name of Jesus Christ, grabbed him by the arm, pulled him up, and the man leapt to his feet and immediately began walking and leaping and praising God. Now they entered into the temple. There's a, a portion of the temple on that day that was called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico. It was kind of a, a covered area of the temple. And this man, jumping around, everybody recognized who he was. He was making quite a scene. And a crowd began to gather, uh, gather there that was amazed by the miracle that had just happened. And so Peter starts preaching there to this crowd in the temple. And he's preaching that there's power in the name of Jesus. That they had crucified Jesus and God had raised him from the dead and only in the name of Jesus could they be freed from their sin. And that leads us to chapter 4. And we're going to break chapter 4 into four sections and go through it together. But as I did that in preparation for this message, it kept getting longer and longer and longer. Uh, until I realized that we would either need to have a conference today or I'd have to make this uh, more than one part. And so uh, we'll continue this message later. And today we're only going to get through a part of it. So Acts 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. And then we'll start off in the first part of this message. It says, As they spake unto the people there at Solomon's porch, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, or by what name, have ye done this? Then Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people, and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. 
You know, spirit-filled Christians can't help but preach the gospel. And that's what Peter does here. Spirit-filled Christians can face opposition with boldness, declaring what the Bible has to say. And as we examine this passage together this morning, ask yourself this. These two common everyday fishermen stood boldly for the name of Christ. Am I doing the same? Am I standing boldly in face of opposition? Notice, first of all, this morning, the incarceration in verses 1 through 4. Incarceration. Chapter 4 begins with the arrest of Peter and John. It says, As they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold in jail until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. They were arrested while preaching. They were arrested while preaching. Peter and John entered the temple at the ninth hour, which is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or let's see, time change. No, we'll just stick with 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time they were arrested, the Bible says in Acts 4 that it was already the evening. Meaning that they were likely preaching and teaching for three hours or so. So I expect patience this morning from you all. It says they in verse 1. You see that in Acts 4 verse 1? It means that not only Peter was preaching, John was at it also. John partook in the preaching and teaching of the crowd there at the temple. We just don't have what John said. These religious leaders in the temple, the ones that are mentioned here are the priests, uh, the temple peacekeeper. He was responsible for keeping order in the temple, for seeing that everything went as it should and was uh, done according uh, to tradition. He was the temple peacekeeper, so uh, he was part of it. The Sadducees also rushed in and stopped what they thought was detrimental and blasphemous. Can I tell you how alive the Bible becomes if you read it every day? For example, when I first began studying the book of Acts and was working in this uh, chapter, chapter 4 here, my reading schedule, my daily reading schedule, led me to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, as I'm reading my Bible that day, I realized that Jesus himself stood on the very spot that Peter and John were standing now in Acts chapter 4, and Jesus was confronted by the Jews, and they told him, tell us plainly if you're the Christ, and Jesus did. So there, on that very same spot, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. On that very same spot in the temple. And the Jews tried to stone him on that very same spot, uh, but he escaped them. Isn't it interesting and remarkable that in such a short period of time, the disciples of Christ had completely stepped into the ministry of Christ, just as he promised that they would. In John 14, verse 12, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. The disciples had stepped into the office that Jesus had once occupied and were doing exactly what he said, greater works there in the same spot in the temple. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, 
It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so there, Peter and John in the temple are fulfilling the promises of Christ. They're standing in the same spot that he stood. They're declaring to the Jews the very same message that he preached, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they were interrupted eventually there, but how sobering it is to realize that the disciples of Christ are to stand as he did and to declare as he did to the world around them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need more Christians in our day that would stand for Christ and preach the name of Christ to the world around us. Are you doing that? The disciples were arrested in that very same spot while they were preaching, and they were arrested for preaching. They were arrested for preaching. They weren't there inciting revolution. They weren't there really disturbing the peace. They were doing nothing that was not permissible by law. They were just preaching in the name of Jesus. And it was that reason for which they were arrested. Had Peter and John not preached, they would not have been arrested that day. But a disciple of Jesus Christ must preach. You probably know the name John Bunyan because of his famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. But the people of Bunyan's day knew him as a pastor and a preacher. He was a common tinkerer whom God had saved and gifted him in preaching the word. It came about in England that the leadership changed, and with it, the government's feelings towards independent churches. All churches and all congregations now had to belong to the Church of England or face the consequences. Many preachers and congregations fled, some to America, but John Bunyan stayed preaching in secret as much as possible in outdoor services and in homes. One author tells his story that in November of 1660, John Bunyan was scheduled to preach in a friend's house. He had been warned that a warrant was out for his arrest and he was urged to escape. Bunyan, as well as anyone else, could see that tough times for dissenters in England were ahead, and he didn't want gospel preachers to flee the country at the first sign of trouble. Furthermore, he knew he couldn't live in hiding. He had to preach. Wanting to encourage others to live boldly, he preached that morning, and he was arrested halfway through his message. He was sentenced to three months in prison. Every three months, John Bunyan had the opportunity to be released to his family if he would only promise that he would quit preaching. But he refused. He said, I have determined, the Almighty God being my help and shield, yet to suffer, if frail life might continue so long, even till the moss shall grow on my eyebrows, rather than to violate my faith and principles. He went on like this for 12 years. Every three months, He was given the opportunity to set free if he would only promise not to preach. He understood what Christians have now often forgotten, that the child of God must do the will of God no matter the consequences. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. They were arrested for preaching. And notice that the crowd was affected by preaching. We don't have a recorded invitation here. And Peter and John were hauled off to prison before they could do any long-term discipleship or counseling there. 
But God's word did the work it is promised to do. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we find out in verse 4 that many came to Christ and were saved that day. If you dig into the phrase there that it says 5,000 men, you'll discover that nobody really agrees on what that means. <laughs> One commentator summed up the discussion saying, It is unclear whether the estimated 5,000 people includes only men or also women, and whether the figure includes all believers in Jerusalem or refers to new conversions on this particular occasion. So what we can infer from that verse is that there were at least 5,000 Christians in Jerusalem because of this day. Quite a growth spurt considering that in Acts 1 they had 120 and now in Acts 4, there are at least 5,000 believers in the church in Jerusalem. By the way, this is also the last time the number of the church members is mentioned in the book of Acts. In this simple but powerful truth, we find that though they arrest the preacher, they can't arrest the Word of God. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the hearts and intents of the heart. It's living, it's powerful, and the power is not found in the preacher. It's found in the Word of God. Even the Apostle Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 2.4 that my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There is power in the Word of God. You need to be speaking the Word of God to your children, to your grandchildren, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. You need to, to be preaching the gospel and discover that God accomplishes powerful things through the preaching of His Word. They arrested the preachers, but people still got saved. Romans 1 says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. They were arrested for preaching, but the crowd was still affected by the preaching. And notice not only their incarceration, but their interrogation. Their interrogation. Look back at verses 5 and on. It says, and it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers and the elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. 
And beholding the man which was healed standing by them or with them, they could say nothing against it. Notice that this whole council inquires regarding the power. By what power have you done this? After spending the night in prison, Peter and John were brought before this council. This was an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. This was the same council, by the way, that just a few months prior had condemned Jesus to die. So not only did the apostles preach in the same place that Jesus preached, they were brought before the same council that condemned Christ. These men asked Peter and John the same question they asked Jesus. By what power or by what name have ye done this? And by this they meant healed the lame man. Their question, by what authority have you performed this miracle, reveals just how hard and stubborn they were in their hearts. You know, Jesus had done many such miracles. They had seen it time and time again, but they still refused to accept that he was the Son of God. They couldn't admit that the name of Jesus had such power. They themselves had killed him for making that claim. The Sadducees also denied the possibility of the resurrection entirely, making it even worse that these men were claiming to preach and perform miracles in the power of a resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Even for the Pharisees, this would be problematic because they believed in the day of resurrection and Jesus was early. <laughs> they inquired regarding the power. By what name? By whose power? By what authority do you do these things? And then you have the inspired response of Peter here in chapter 4. What a message this is. Peter gives a strong reply. He's not shy. He's not afraid. Perhaps in the back of his mind were the words of Christ that had said that these things would happen. In Luke 12, verse 11, Jesus said, when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. What truly made the difference, though, in Peter? How was it that Peter was able to give such a strong reply? If you remember, when Jesus was arrested and brought before this very same council, the very same men that Peter faced now, Peter was so afraid that he denied that he even knew Jesus. But now, he gives a strong, bold reply. The difference was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus promised in that same passage in Luke 12, the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. And added to that are the words of Jesus in Luke 21, where he says in verse 12 through 15, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. What gave Peter and John this boldness before the Sanhedrin? It was the fire of the Spirit of God and their faith in the promises of God. Do you rest in those same promises? Do you know the Spirit's power and presence in your life? Hebrews 13 says this in verses 5 through 6, that let your conversation, your conduct, your lifestyle, your behavior be without covetousness 
And be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Peter gave a strong reply, and he also gave a scriptural reply. Peter didn't depend on logic. He didn't study debate. What did Peter do? He spoke the Bible. He spoke the Bible. He quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Jesus used that very same uh, passage to speak to these men. In Luke 20, it says, And Jesus beheld them and said, What is this then that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Peter just gave them Scripture, the very same Scripture that Jesus gave them. The image of the stone was not new to these men. They were experts in the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew that the rock was a symbol of God. You can find that all throughout the Old Testament. They knew that the prophet Daniel had used the rock to picture the Messiah and the coming of his kingdom on earth. They knew that all these things, and the Jews stumbled over the rock, Jesus Christ, and rejected him just as Psalm 118 had predicted. But to those that have trusted in Christ, he's the precious cornerstone and the chief cornerstone. Peter gives a scriptural reply. He just quotes the Bible to them, and it's a very sound reply. It's a sound reply. These religious leaders could say nothing against it. They had no argument. When you speak the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, there's only one thing the hearers can do. They can either accept it or reject it. There's no arguing with it. It's the truth of God. Why, why would we bother with any other method than that? Why would preachers give any other message than the message of Scripture? Why would we feed the flocks any other food than the Spirit-filled preaching of the whole counsel of God? You know, many Christians today, maybe some of you included, have very little power in their life. You have no spiritual focus. You feel like your life has no clear direction. You're struggling all the time with doubts and questions. And the question you need to answer in your own mind is, are you spending a portion of your day every day reading and reflecting in the Word of God? That's where the soundness is. That's where the power is. That's where the clarity is. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The Lord God must be sanctified or set apart in your heart. He has first place, which means that His Word is more precious, as Job said, than your necessary food. Obedience to Him is reasonable because He's your master. He's your Savior, your King. He's your Lord. And to know Him as a Christian is the quest of a lifetime. Colossians 1 says, verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Verse 16 of Colossians 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts. 
to the Lord. To dwell means that the word makes its home in your heart abundantly and richly. So does the word of God richly and abundantly abide in your heart? Is it at home there? Have you been welcoming it in daily? I love what Spurgeon said about that verse. In order that it might dwell in you, it must first enter into you. You must really know the spiritual meaning of it. You must believe it. You must live upon it. You must drink it in. You must let it soak into your uttermost being. It is not enough to have a Bible on the shelf. It is infinitely better to have its truths stored up within your soul. It is a good thing to carry your testament in your pocket. It is far better to carry its message in your heart. But mind that you let it get right into you. What you allow in your heart will manifest itself in your life. If you desire the boldness and victory that Peter and John had, you should be filling your heart and mind and life with God's word. It was a sound reply. It was a singular reply. It was a very simple message. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and there is no other. A very simple message. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That was the simple message that Peter preached there. Do you know the one and only Savior of all men? Have you placed your faith solely in Jesus, the Son of God, for forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Is He your personal Lord and Savior? He can be. He wants to be. There's no other name whereby ye must be saved. Are you saved? The inspired response of Peter, and notice the incredible realization of the panel. I love this part. Verse 13 and 14, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What a remarkable testimony. A remarkable testimony. These religious leaders and teachers had been formally educated in the law. They were trained. They were educated. And they marveled at the boldness and skill of Peter and John with the word. It was not so much that they believed that Peter and John were merely just stupid hick fishermen and they were marveling but rather that they were clearly, clearly uneducated men. And yet, they were able to preach boldly from the Word of God. Can I remind you of something that I've said before? God is not looking for talented men. He's not seeking intelligent men. He's not seeking extraordinary men. He's simply seeking faithful men. Faithful men. 1 Corinthians 1 says, But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. 
and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. These men faithfully stood before the Sanhedrin, a powerful group of individuals that can make their life very difficult and uncomfortable. And yet they stood not in their own power or their own might or for their own glory, but in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And these dumbfounded religious leaders knew the reason. These men have been with Jesus. Let me ask you, have you been with Jesus? Have you ever poured out your heart to Him in prayer? You let His Word work in you and through you. Do you read it and meditate on it? Do you obey it? Do you share it? Do you spend time with Jesus? Because that is what makes your testimony remarkable. It's not a master's degree. It's not understanding Greek and Hebrew. It's not being able to use big words. It's just the fact these men... They've been with Jesus. And what a remarkable testimony that was. And then we see the remarkable transformation. They couldn't understand how these two ordinary men could stand up to their scrutiny. And on top of that, they couldn't explain the miracle that had just been performed. I love what one man said. He said, perhaps the Jewish leaders remembered just how difficult it had been to win an argument with Jesus. Now they were having the same difficulty and it was compounded by the fact that the healed man was there for all to see. There standing in front of them was a man who had not been able to stand since birth. In his 40s, this man was completely transformed by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. By the way, in this room today are men and women who are not what they once were. Who were blind in sin, but now they see. Who were lost in darkness, but now walk in the light of life. Who had no hope, but now rest in that blessed hope. Who have been transformed by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 is a great reminder for us as Christians. It says in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know what the world can't explain? It can't explain the change that takes place in a man who places his faith in the name of Jesus Christ. The world cannot reason away a life that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. When evangelist John Wesley was returning home from a service one night, he was robbed. The thief found his victim only to have a little money and some Christian literature. As the bandit was leaving, John Wesley cried out, Stop! I've got something else to give you! The robber was surprised, but he stopped. And John Wesley said, My friend... 
You may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The thief ran away, and Wesley prayed that his words might bear fruit. Years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service when he was approached by a stranger and was surprised to learn that this visitor, now a believer in Christ and a businessman, was the very same man that had robbed him years before. I owe it all to you, said the transformed man. Oh, my friend, Wesley exclaimed, not to me, but to the precious blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Folks, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power to completely and utterly transform the most wicked of sinners. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Have you seen transformation in your own life? Have you been born again? Are you a new creature in Christ? John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, the slave ship captain turned preacher said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with, great, with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Does that sound like you? It should. And knowing that the name of Jesus is that powerful to save, are you bringing that same name to others around you? Are you sharing it with those that God brings your way? I'll give you one last illustration and then I'm through. There was a preacher from a generation ago that told this story. He was going down the stairs in his hotel about midnight with some letters in his hand that he wanted to mail, but the clerk was not in his office. But there was a policeman there, and the policeman said, I will take your letters. I'll mail them for you. And the preacher thanked him and handed them to him and then started back up the stairs. And as he went, he felt his conscience prick him and say, why didn't you share the gospel with that policeman? And in his mind, he thought, well, it wouldn't do him any good. His conscience, again, how do you know? And all the while, he's climbing the stairs thinking, why didn't I speak to him about his soul? Finally, he went back, started down the stairs, but the door shut and when he came into the office, the policeman was gone. And all night, his heart smote him. And all the next day, his heart smote him. And he prayed, Lord, if I see that man again, I will give him the gospel. To his great surprise, that man came to the afternoon meeting and sat in the back row. And there was a crowd there. And after the benediction, he tried to go back and find the man where he had sat, but the aisles filled so quickly that he couldn't do it. And he thought that he had missed another opportunity. As he stood there talking with some of the other people, in a few moments the aisle cleared, and as he looked down it, he saw the policeman coming towards the front with tears streaming down his cheeks, and he said, I have never known what it meant to be a Christian, but if you would tell me, I'd like to start. All around us, bumping into us, waiting on us in the store and in the restaurants, looking into our faces across the table, are people that are waiting for the power of the name of Jesus Christ that transforms lives. 
And I'd start if you would just tell me. How quickly we shut our mouths in fear. How easily we shy away from giving the gospel. We need God give us the boldness of Peter and John to declare the gospel without fear. That even in the face of opposition, we could stand and speak what God has commanded us to speak. We need to be men and women of the Bible that the Spirit can speak through, that no matter what, we can reply with the Word of God. That we have the testimony that we're just ordinary men and women. Nothing special about us. We want nothing more than to please our Savior, and everything that He does through us is all Him, His honor, His glory. And our lives should be a remarkable testimony of people that have been with Jesus. Spirit-filled Christians cannot help but preach the gospel, even in face of opposition, boldly declaring the Word of God. And the question is, are we Spirit-filled Christians? Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me he can do nothing. Why does it seem that the church in America is powerless to slow the descent of our culture into wickedness? Because the church in America hasn't been with Jesus. They don't know him very well. And how can you testify of a Savior that you don't really know? Let's bow our heads this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, I, I can't see into your heart, but the Spirit can. Maybe you just realized this morning through the preaching of God's Word, I don't really think I know Jesus. I've been claiming to know Jesus. I, I thought I knew Jesus. But you know, I, I just never experienced that transforming power in my life. He hasn't really changed me any. Maybe this morning you just need somebody to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you know Jesus is your Savior. Do you know we had a young man last week who sat down with one of our church people, had his questions answered from the Bible, and he got saved. That could be you today. You'd be thrilled to do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you realize, you know, I just don't have that same testimony. And I need, I need to get back to Jesus. I need to get back to his word. I need to share the gospel. However, the Lord has challenged you this morning. We invite you to come to do business with him as the piano plays. You take some time.